Hello listeners and welcome to this episode of the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on Friday, September 14, 2018. It's a rough and ready roundtable podcast today with Chad O'Carroll and Oliver Hotham just back from a long trip to North Korea. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can find all of our news stories and analysis on nknews.org. And if you're already a subscriber of nknews.org, consider upgrading to NK Pro, where you'll find all of our more extended analysis and ex- excellent research and analysis tools for understanding the situation on the Korean Peninsula better. So, Chad and Oliver, welcome. Welcome back, I should say. Thank you. Good to be back. How long were you there for? Uh, we were there from Wednesday, uh, the 5th of September until Wednesday, the 12th of September yesterday. So we're fresh back and uh, looking forward to sharing all of our experiences and insights with you from this trip. Excellent. Now, the purpose of your trip was to go there for the 70th anniversary founding parade. Wait, 70th anniversary of the founding of the Republic celebrations. Is that right? That's That's right. And all the surrounding events, you know, we knew ahead of time that there was going to be a military parade. Mm. Uh, there were a lot of questions about whether or not North Korea would choose to um, show its ICBMs at that event. Um, there were a lot of questions about whether or not uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping would appear. Um, and we also knew there was going to be a mass games, the glorious fatherland, um, brilliant fatherland. There were about five different translations going uh-huh. around. Um, so we knew that there was going to be some fireworks, literally and metaphorically. Um, and so that was kind of the primary reason for going but we also wanted to just go into the country it had been over a year since we'd been so uh, yeah. yeah well it's it's good to uh, to see it at least once a year to yeah. keep up with the changes isn't it now um, 70 years of uh, of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea that's obviously uh, a big day they like to um, celebrate the five and ten years just like in the West I suppose uh, in North Korea that you mentioned the uh, the parade um, let's start with that you called it a military parade. What was the level of militaryness of the parade? Um, so there were tens of thousands of, of troops, uh, various types, everything from uh, volunteer style, uh, historical uniforms to uh, modern special forces. They all came marching through much in the same way as to April 2017 when we were there. Um, but then the hardware rolled out and while there were, was a lot of uh, artillery, number of tanks, um, when the sort of more heavy weaponry came out, all we really saw were three or four, I believe it was, uh, types of surface-to-air missiles, ship-to-ship missiles, um, really quite small fry from mm. um, the tactical uh, and strategic weapons perspective. Um, we saw no short range like scud type missiles we saw no intermediate range uh, missiles such as the Hwasong 12 which had been showcased in prior parades recently and of course the big thing that all journalists were really looking out for was the ICBM class of missiles intercontinental ballistic missiles and we didn't see any of those either so that was um, a big relief Mm. I think for uh, parts of the international community certainly South Korea the United States Um, but it was it was you know quite remarkable to see that uh, the DPRK held back on that because some observers had been anticipating them to roll out the the big heavy stuff because of language in the Panmunjom Declaration and in the um, 
Singapore Summit Agreement, which didn't exactly precisely commit DPRK to not doing things like showcasing its uh, extended range delivery systems. But I think if they had showed them, it would not have been in the spirit of either of those agreements, really. And, you know, you can always rely on your minders um, for a pithy quote. But right after the ICBMs didn't roll past and it became clear that they weren't going to, um, I asked one of the minders, so is this, is this a peaceful gesture? And he said, you guessed it. Guessed <laughs> it. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, now, the soldiers, do they march in... Uh, battle dress uniforms, or is it more of a the formal uh, non-battle? I don't even know what what to call it, but the non-battle uniforms. So some at the start when they're doing the flag raising ceremony were in that that more uniform style, um, but most of them were, were it seemed to be in the kind of battle ready, hmm. uh, you know, especially the special forces yeah. with yeah. the face paint. Oh, um, they had the face paint too. Yeah, and it was a really hot day, yeah. so to be carrying all that gear around covered in really dark face paint would have been pretty intense in the sun. Now, there was a, uh, a parade, I can't remember exactly when, but let's say a couple of years ago, uh, a parade in which some of those guys in the camouflage uniforms were wearing uh, backpacks yeah. with uh, radioactive mm. symbols on them to almost symbolize human nuclear dirty bombs, perhaps. At least that's how they were interpreted well, by they, some of the West media. Did you see those guys with their backpacks and the nuclear symbols again this time? No, we didn't. Um, there weren't really that many references to nuclear weapons at all in the parade there was i think the only rocket that appeared um was on a um float about mm. um education and there was a little wow. little yeah. rocket above some cute looking school children oh i think i saw uh, in a diorama at a school i was taken to in april last year uh, oh yeah a very similar rocket yeah and interestingly um while not something that we would have expected in the parade itself but in the mass games event later on that night uh, no reference to space exploration, to satellite launch capabilities, um, and in, in general, like that uh, topic was really uh, not visible at all in any of the like domestic posters. And and as you know, that that sci- like that part of North Korea's scientific aspiration has yeah. always been um, quite prominent in the past. So it seems they're also aware in the DPRK of the criticism that comes in some parts uh, of the. You know, arms control community that the, these um, space launch vehicles, uh, you know, pose as a uh, way, present a way for the DPRK to do long range missile testing undercover. That's very interesting messaging. We should uh, talk a bit more about that, about well, messaging in general. Uh, I understand that there was a, uh, a photograph that showed President Moon of South Korea. Oh, in the, the parade? Yeah, that was, sorry, that was in the, the mass games in the evening. Ah, not the parade, and, but the mass uh, games. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable because there was a Tongil unification um, sign that came up. And after that, the human pixels gave way to, I think they must have all put up black pixels so that uh, like moving images could be projected onto it. And yeah. And then there was this slow motion video of of Moon and Kim embracing each other yeah. and very you know war, yeah. warm into Korean feelings. There was a lot of applause and it mm. was all very all very heartwarming. I also heard from someone that there was some of the slogans uh, in the parade were translated into English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, towards the end, not, not in the parade, oh. in the mass, the, in the mass, mass games. games. Yeah, okay. they had this at the end. They had these kind of. Um, 
kind of old school um, kind of non-alignment move non-aligned movement slogans about you know um, international solidarity mm. multilateral diplomacy good neighborliness um, good neighborliness which we thought was very much a reference to no more nuclear tests yeah because China um, always stresses about those yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, that that did seem a bit of a nod to all the friendship groups who uh, were there to make them feel like it was worthwhile mm-hmm. visiting. And then there was this kind of diorama of all these um, all these Koreans in sort of different national dresses, all kind of dancing with each other. So there were some people in like traditional um, Spanish clothes, and um, mm. yeah, it was all very um, and someone African, right? Yeah, there was a bit of blackface. Um, oh, which um, <laughs> seriously? Yeah. Oh Which, I mean, you know, it's North Korea. Well, yeah, they, they haven't quite caught up with... Uh, I mean, that stuff often appears on South Korean TV. So. I know, it sometimes does too. Um, did you see any signs in either the parade or at the mass games of uh, anti-Americanism? Uh, no, actually. No. Uh, yeah, no, sorry, there was. Yes, on some of the tanks that rolled through Kim Il-sung Square, um, they have very small uh, hand-painted... Korean text slogans just mm-hmm. on the front really you wouldn't really notice them unless you're looking at a zoomed in photo and our colleague Colin spotted some mm. anti-American just says let us destroy the enemy mm. the imperialist US aggressors well that uh, look it, it does sound like a very muted um, a, a different messaging compared to what we've seen in the past even as recently as the, uh, the February uh, Army Day parade uh, what do we make of all this? How do we interpret this messaging? What are they, what are they trying to achieve? Well, I thought it was interesting. It was kind of the first time that we've seen the North Koreans kind of flip the messaging a little bit. So in the past, you go to North Korea and you kind of just always hear the same things, right? About <clears throat> American aggression and the state of war and all this stuff. But the North Koreans really seem to have kind of tried to tailor a message for international journalists. And that message was essentially about um, diplomacy. They were very keen to talk about how there were no more anti-US posters on the streets, and you'd mm. ask them about that, and they'd say, "Well, those posters will be gone as long as diplomacy continues." Um, we went to the International Friendship Exhibition, and there was one room that was just full of pictures of uh, Kim Jong Un meeting with Moon Jae-in and Donald Trump, um, and they were also very keen to emphasise this economic angle. So they're essentially. In April, Kim Jong-un made this speech where he said, you know, our nuclear program is complete. We're just going to focus on the economy now. And they are really, really pushing that. Almost everyone you would speak to on the streets would mention it. North Koreans, minders would talk about it all the time. And then in the visits that we went, you know, factories, um, schools with new technology, they were really trying to promote this idea that, well, now we're shifting towards economic development, Mm. which was interesting in that that's what they're trying to emphasize, but also interesting in the fact that they were able to kind of have a new message and that they clearly kind of worked on this is going to be our message which is kind of rare for North Korea to but at the same time there were a few things we did see that like were almost either relics from the past Mm. or suggest there could be some kind of outer inner track of of domestic facing propaganda so for example in one of the factories we went to just around the corner there was a big poster which had the Hwasong 15 ICBM Mm. on it Inside, next to the cafeteria, we saw uh, photos of the Hwasong 12 and some rocket artillery system. And one of our colleagues from Reuters, I, I think it was at the uh, cosmetics factory, mm. he lost his minders and went upstairs and opened a door and just walked into a room just full of anti-American propaganda, tried to take photos and the minders were like stopping him. 
So you got to wonder, like, do and and one of the diplomats we spoke to in the DPRK also said he'd seen about twenty cases of of anti-American stuff in the, la- the last month or so, mm. uh, sort of hidden away. And it does raise a question: is it is it is it for show? Or is it just a mistake? There's obviously so much to, to yeah. cleanse, yeah. but you'd think that factories that journalists are being taken to would really have a, a deep scrub of all that stuff if that is the the clear message that they need to project one would expect that how many foreign journalists roughly speaking did you see there uh, there was there was 130 in total ah. um uh, maybe from about 60 or 70 outlets i'd say and uh, yeah a lot of friendship groups as well the, uh, everything from the like wildly sycophantic um groups to more you know left leaning uh yeah. anti-imperialist struggle type stuff and we were all together in the yangakta hotel they cleared out all that tourists. hotel of tourists put them all in the choreo hmm. the little smaller ones so it was mainly just that hotel was just international press and the friendship groups um which was an interesting mix which was an interesting mix is that poor shark still swimming around in the aquarium there uh, by the bar in the S- lobby it's all sturgeon now and apparently you can order them uh in the tea in jong tea house mm. you can order oh. them and have a raw sturgeon of some sort with your tea yeah they've got a um, new thing in that cafe that we didn't have last time they've got a spaghetti that's actually quite good mm. um was the parade uh, live broadcast within north korea as far as you know no it wasn't it was uh broadcast the day after it took i think until monday morning so mm. it took place on sunday morning and they broadcast it on monday morning with a highlights package or the whole thing it was the whole thing. Okay. Much how, better angles than we had. How long was the parade? Two hours. Two hours. Um, and the mass games, I think, was about two hours as well. I don't know if they had any... They Did Did they do coverage of that on KCTV, the mass games? They must have done. I didn't, yeah. I didn't see any, but I'm assuming they did. Yeah. Um, now, how many people, roughly speaking, how many people participated in the parade itself? Does it uh, look like a lot? Uh, yeah, I... I heard one estimate of two hundred thousand by time. Vice News. Um, I don't know, like, I, I would, I would say like high tens of thousands. Yeah. It didn't seem like, like hundreds of thousands because it was, it felt shorter. Um, so yeah. That was a daytime parade, wasn't it? Yes. Was yeah. there a a torch lit element? That was in the evening, and we didn't actually go to that part. Was that a separate parade? That was on. Um, Sorry, on that was on Monday, Monday evening. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a separate thing um, that we chose. We chose not to attend. Um, okay, but you you could have if you'd wanted to. Is that? Oh yeah, yeah. very. So much. it wasn't just for internal. No, 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 no. Okay. They wanted they wanted journalists to go to it. And actually, some of uh, one colleague I spoke to who did attend said it was actually really stunning. Mm. Uh, one of the most quote beautiful things unquote they've ever seen so it is a remarkable so if anyone hasn't seen the uh, 1988 documentary by Andrzej Fidek the uh, Polish uh, documentary maker called The Parade uh, I think you can find it on YouTube or clips of it um, it's certainly quite something to see mm. but those um, those torches themselves they must be there's a lot of fire involved there is there a danger yeah I mean, we sorry go on Chad yeah we we, we did uh, managed to see one that was like left over on the street mm. and it was like this tightly bound paper like wrapped round and round like really thin paper wrapped yeah. just hundreds of times around itself and I'm guessing it's been coated with some kind of 
wax type thing that burns slowly and then to protect the uh, children's hands each one appeared to have like this round circle that when we looked closely was made of like cigarette packets that had yeah. been sort of cut in a shape wow. and sort of glued together with tape and, and stuff. There were a lot of fire engines in Pyongyang that evening just yeah. on, on standby if anything went wrong. How old are the children carrying these torches? I mean, it varied. You know, we saw um, adults, you know, kind of students, and then we saw children pro possibly as young as 10. Gosh. I'd say. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a lot of fumes for them to be... Um, breathing in as no, well and, um, and a fire danger too now what about um international dignitaries who was there to watch this parade and give support to north korea to congratulate them on their 70th anniversary well there was obviously uh china's third in command uh, yeah lee jean shu was there yeah. the um, member of the standing committee of the political bureau of the communist party of china it's a long title but as you said yeah he's number three in the in the uh the protocol yeah i think there was probably a lot of disappointment on the north korean side that the chinese president um chose not to come but um yeah you know, there was a lot of reports ahead of the event that he would attend but um ultimately a big angle of the parade and the surrounding events was the dprk china relationship mm. you know, at the end of the parade uh, kim jong-un and um mr lee um sort of stood hand in hand they put their hands up oh of, yeah um inter korean summit style um all at all of the events the chinese delegate was right next to leader it was all um clearly about reaffirming that relationship and there was also the president of mauritania was mauritania it? yeah ah. and um the head of russia's federative council was there as well senior cuban figure um i forget who that was and then syria sent a presidential uh delegation as well uh, who was also on the podium, I think. Um, so some of the old, long-standing friends of North Korea. Some of the Korea. old comrades, yeah. Yeah, yeah and a very mysterious-looking um, woman from some Gulf country, I think, who was wearing um, like these long, sort of uh, light-coloured uh, dress um, with sunglasses, looking straight out of the 1970s, mm. just standing, actually, for most of the parade, looking uh, down onto the, the square. Did she have a head hair covering? She did, yes. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the non-aligned movement? Did they did that make a reappearance? Well, there was a... Um, in the Young Actile, I interviewed um, the head South African delegate, mm. um, the Minister of Transport, um, who was there kind of for two reasons. He said he was there because, um, you know, the South African um, ruling party obviously has a long relationship with the North because the North gave them help in the old... Uh, apartheid era and then he also said that as minister of transport he was interested in some degree of cooperation with the north on um on i wonder what that would look like would that be north korea investing in, in sorry yeah north korea investing in south african transport infrastructure so. he said yeah they've done very impressive things with the new trams there and buses and hmm. he was kind of interested in uh, learning a bit more about that which um was a little bit strange but uh, interesting nonetheless that is certainly interesting uh, and of course, the uh, the Korea Friendship Association. You mentioned them, the uh, the long-standing fanboys of uh, mm -hmm. of North Korea. We'd love to have somebody from the KFA. If anyone from the KFA is listening, we'd love to interview you on the NK News podcast, especially uh, Dr. Dermot Hudson. Special hello to our friend Dr. Hudson out there. Did you see him? 
We did. Uh, well, I did bump into him outside um, of the May Day Stadium, and I presented myself and tried to do an interview with him. But he stated that it was his policy not to do interviews with NK News. So unfortunately, we didn't get an interview with him. But we did, however, uh, interview four or five uh, varying types from friendship associations, other countries who were there. And that was actually really interesting to hear their stories about what's motivated them to come to DPRK. Um, you know, the, the most notable one was a chap from the Philippines who mm. was leading a delegation. And uh, I asked him what he did back in the Philippines and his answer was, oh, I'm a human rights activist. Well, hello. Uh, and I said, oh, that's interesting. Like, what types of issues? And he said, I'm really against uh, Duterte's extrajudicial killings. Um, you know, crime and uh, lawlessness and all sorts. And I, I asked, do you think there's any similar issues that might be taking place in this country? He's like, no, 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 this, this country is perfect. Um, absolutely no problems. Um, so just, just fascinating to see someone from that kind of background who is such a supporter of the DPRK system. Um, really incredible. And of course... With apologies uh, to our friend Chris Green, that does sound quite ironic, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, Gerard Depardieu, the oh. French actor, was there. Now, is, is he a Russian citizen now? He's. I heard from French journalists that he's um, both Russian and French. Okay. Um, but he, we spotted him in the Yangak, though, I think the second night we were there. And, um, obviously, he's quite hard to miss. He's um, a big fellow. He's a big fellow. And um, he was surrounded by his, his posse. And I, I very politely approached and asked if I could interview him, and I was, I was told not to take photos or anything like that. And then a follow-up attempt to do that, um, I was quite sternly warned by his um, KFA kind of guy that mm. um, if I continued, I would be in trouble and I'd, I'll have a bad time in North Korea. Gee. Surprised, given that um, you know, obviously he's not the North Korean police, and no. is he going to beat me up? I'm not really sure. <laughs> Did uh, Monsieur Depardieu speak about? His love for North Korea. I mean, do we know why he was there? Um, I had a rumor that he's he was essentially um, a longtime filmmaker, kind of associated with the KFA, French KFA. Um, had kind of been in contact with him and wanted some help on a film about the country. And I think Mr. Depardieu wanted to go and see the country for himself. Mm. But that was just on the grapevine. I'm not sure how true that is. But when we saw him leaving Pyongyang Airport um, on Wednesday, Mr. Depardieu had a one of the Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il badges. So oh, he had the portraits on his chest. He had the portraits and he was wearing it, so he oh. clearly had a good time, I think. Did he not turn up at the bar at the hotel any night of the week? He was there quite a lot. I didn't, never saw him um, on the source, though, so maybe he's... Yeah, I was reading uh, he's uh, apparently had some issues with alcohol consumption and has knocked it on the head. Oh. Um, but, yeah, I, I, we only saw him drinking water and he... He did. I, I also tried to interview him on, as soon as I arrived. And he right, because you're francophone, aren't you? Uh, yeah, and he very violently, aggressively said, no, no way, I will not do an interview. Um, so yeah. that didn't go down very well. And the French, some French journalists I spoke to said he told them to va faire foutre, which means <laughs> go fuck yourself. So, Ooh, uh, explicit warning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah. Uh, now, did you see any Americans there? Oh, well, we saw... Because there um, is still a travel ban, which we should point out to our listeners if they weren't already aware. The uh, the United States State Department has extended its travel ban for another year, is that right? So uh, technically there shouldn't have been any Americans there. Uh, were there? 
lots of journalists, lots of American journalists, Will Ripley, CNN, okay, CBS, so, so NBC. They, they yeah. have a dispensation. Uh, yeah, they have an exception to go. But no, no, we didn't. I don't think we did see any any touring. No, I mean everyone I assume might be American turned out to be Canadian. So yeah, yeah, lots of Canadians there, um, and and interestingly, some Korean. Canadian, Korean, Australian groups, yeah. including some pastors. Very, very interesting talking to them. Could you, please go on and expand a bit more on that? Yeah, well, we, we saw a group of uh, Korean, like uh, older gentlemen and, and women leaving the Yangakta Hotel one morning and decided to interview them. And uh, we knew from the night before one of them was a pastor. I'm not sure what his motivation for going to DPRK was. But one was a former Korea Times journalist who... I suspect is South Korean Australian mm. based in Sydney and um, he he was telling his story about why he came his dad was from Nampo originally oh, yeah. so he, he really wanted to see DPRK with his own eyes um, and when I asked you know I heard there are some religious folks in your group how about you he responded uh, Juche is my religion wow gosh now was he there in his capacity as a journalist of some sort, or was he just there as a... No, he as must a have been in his, his early 70s, I'd say, so oh, retired. Okay. Uh, but it was like a, a sort of... I think there's like a senior group of, of Korean-Australians, mm. and they, they he said they decided to go to celebrate the DPRK 70th anniversary. Wow. Yeah. We also saw some groups from the Chungryan. Um, yeah. Oh, the, uh, the Japanese. The Japanese, uh, um, which is a little surreal because all of those ladies kind of just look like South Korean ladies. Yeah. Um, you mean in terms of hairstyle and makeup? In terms of fashion. And fashion. Um, oh, do they no longer wear the uh, the white, black, uh, you know, sort of uh, modernized hanbok? I didn't. They used to have that as a uniform that the, uh, the Japanese Koreans did. I didn't see that. I just saw a lot of perms and um, handbags. Mm, okay. Um, were, were there any... Uh, uh, ethnically, sort of Korean overseas uh, journalists or uh, or media outlets represented there, like uh, for example, you know, uh, yeah, that that's a good question. We didn't see, um, uh, for example, Minjok Tongshin, right. the Korean American uh, pro DPRK news organization. Tongshin um, Shinbo would have been there, wouldn't they? From Japan, uh, Chosen Shinbo, you mean? Sorry, um, Shinbo, yeah, but they weren't in our media room huh. no, no South Korean journalists either which was interesting given all the rapprochement yes. you'd expect there'd be an invite um, but we heard from an MOU source that there were not, none allowed to go none invited so that was that was also quite interesting also no South Koreans went there illegally as far as you know I mean possibly in one or but, two of those I mean, delegations no, but they wouldn't be normally the, the North Koreans would fate them if they if they did go right and in past years they've made a big deal out of uh, mm. here we have you know Somebody from South Korea representing the uh, the oppressed human rights of South Koreans or something like that, and then yeah, you're, you're thinking of eighty eight, right? Yeah. Well, I'm also thinking of two thousand ten when I was there. There was a Han Sang Yol who was a uh, yes. South Korean minister, mm. a uh, a protege of Muni Kwan, who was there in eighty eight, and uh, we were there. Well, we, we weren't in Panmunjom, uh, but we were in Pyongyang on the day when Han Sang Yol stepped over the line at Panmunjom to go back to South Korea after a six week stay in North Korea, a very long stay. Uh, and the second he stepped over that line, he was arrested um, by South Korean agents, and uh, he was given a five-year uh, prison sentence in the end for mm -hmm. breaching national security law. We did, however, see on the day we arrived, there was a South Korean Taeyang Minguk uh, 737 jet on the parkway, which was there to bring Sahun, 
NIS chief and his delegation for that one day meeting with Kim Jong-un. So ah, okay. got, preceding the parade. Yeah, got yeah. a rare glimpse of that. Uh, that's a, oh, that's good. Uh, a nice callback. A uh, rare glimpse, of course, being the stock standard word used by uh, a lot of the mainstream media. I did see a few rare glimpses coming out of social media. There was one, <laughs> a rare glimpse into the isolated Orwellian state, which is a ah, and, and then, uh, which is been posted uh, today the daily mirror yes. who had sent a journalist there which we couldn't really understand why apparently they have an eight page world exclusive head headline yeah. inside north korea which exclusive that 200 other journalists <laughs> so got yeah well. i do think that the word exclusive has somewhat uh, been diluted in meaning over the years um all right now speaking of uh, north and south relations you mentioned that uh, sohun was there for a one day meeting uh today this very day uh, September 14th, the Inter-Korean Liaison Office is supposed to open in the uh, now shuttered Kaesong Industrial Complex. Um, was there any talk of that from either your minders or anybody up in Pyongyang while you were there? Well, I mean, one of the things that strikes you talking to a lot of the North Koreans is really how poorly informed they are about things that are going on in the outside world. I mean, one North Korean specifically asked me if I could find out the date of the summit for him. Mm. And obviously I, I just looked it up and I told him and he was very happy. I mean, they don't- You mean the upcoming summit? Yeah, yeah. Which is next week, next week on 20, Tuesday, yeah. yeah. And um, he said, can you find that out for me? Because um, our media doesn't really give those kinds of details. And so um, I think, you know, when they when you ask them about inter-Korean stuff, it's all very broad. It's all very, you know, about, um, you know, our leader is working for the unification of the country. There's not, they're not really that in tune with the specific kind of day-to-day -day in the same way that we might be in the South, I think. Yeah, and just, just as an example, the day we did arrive and we saw that South Korean jet, I uh, told our guide, oh, do you know what, what plane is on the other side of the airport? And he's like, no, what, what? And I showed him the jet uh, on my camera. That the I Korean Airlines? The, no, it was a Korean government one. Oh, I see. And I showed him a picture of it, and he's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. So it just, it does give you an, a, a sort of idea of the disconnect between just like, a actual news events that are mm. taking place on on you know like meters away from you that people just don't know about it um i was also asked if i'd heard the news that pat Gunhe had been imprisoned wow okay a bit a bit behind on the news <laughs> yeah a little bit mike i was speaking to somebody earlier this week uh who was in rasan very recently and he said to to me that his minder at one stage asked him um how do you open a twitter account and how do you know if uh President Trump's Twitter account is real, and how can you make a fake Twitter account, and all this kind of thing? Which so that's interesting. Yeah. Did anyone talk to you about either Twitter or President Trump while you were there? We got a lot about President Trump. I there was a very interesting kind of local fascination with this attempt that Trump had had to have a military parade. It was during the North Korean military parade. One mm. North Korean was asking me, you know, what Trump wants to have a military parade. I heard, you know, um, why didn't it happen? And I explained it was because of the cost and because obviously a military parade is slightly taboo in the US. It you know, sort of stinks of despotism. And um, and he said, but the Americans are the biggest world power, world military power, you know, don't they want to show it off? Um, and I said, well, apparently not. So. That's interesting. Uh, Chad, did you want to talk to you about uh, President Trump? Um, yeah, there were there were some questions about uh, his political power and like how long he may be in power for things like that. But no, I, I didn't have a great deal of discussions about him. Mm. 
the work we did have some really interesting discussions about internal situation in, in DPRK and um, one of the things uh, which came up was from one individual a rather surprising um, you know frankness about some of the electrical problems so they said that for example in their apartment they live uh, between the ninth or tenth floor somewhere along those lines and they said that very seldom is there power which means you've got a 10 minute walk up the stairs um, and I, I said, what about Ryomyong Street then, yeah. where there's a 65 or 66 floor building? And uh, the person said, oh, no Koreans want to live there. Um, Goodness, that's the street that just opened up with much fanfare last year, isn't it? Yeah, and we did the calculations and you'd be looking at a one hour walk up the stairs, if you were on the 66th floor, rough, probably actually an hour and a half because yeah. it would become very straining. And they said that you know they conceded there were water problems because right because how do you get water pumped yeah, up that high? Water pump won't work. Um, even diplomats that I spoke to, at even an ambassador level, complained that they hadn't even been able to shower during the uh, three days of the um, parade because the DPRK hosts had kept the schedule so tight and busy that um, one ambassador said that they had no running water outside of certain windows oh in the day. Which, um, you know, if you yeah. miss that shower, then, you know, that's that. You know, one said that he had had his internet cut off on a Saturday and not had it back until Monday. Just little Gee. connectivity issues as well were quite a feature of the of the visit, I think. And and the, the Ollie, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the views of non-Kim Jong-un leadership? Because that was... Oh, yeah, remarkable. that was really interesting. Um, yeah, please. I was kind of trying to work out a little bit how attitudes about different people in the kind of ruling um, elite have kind of developed and um, so I was asking the locals about that and um, it started off we were talking about uh, Kim Jong-nam the nominal head of state and um, right, is, the, is he still the president of the people's he's presidium? president of the Stand presidium of the Supreme People's Assembly it's a hard um, title to remember it is um, but North Koreans just say well in our country he's like the president mm. um, and um, he gave the um, he gave the speech. He gave the speech at the military parade, and um, and I found a certain degree of uh, humour in North Koreans about some of their top officials. You know, we were talking about Kim Jong Nam and Kim Jong Nam, and the North Koreans said, "Well, he'll be dead soon anyway." Um, he's he like, is very old. He, he's what, like is he a 90? grandmother. You know, um, ninety plus. Ri Yong Ho, the foreign minister, one North Korean said, "Oh, in our country, we joke that he looks like an egg." Wow. Um, <laughs> so there's almost no deference towards top officials. They're just kind of seen as old bumbling coots. That's interesting. Um, but, um, and then I was talking to North Koreans about Kim Yo-jong. Yes. Um, was she cited at either the parade or the mass games? She was at the parade, um, kind of in the background. But um, Kim Yo-jong, I was talking to the North Koreans about how she'd come here and she'd be, become kind of famous in the South and they kind of liked that. Um, but there didn't seem to be much um, taboo about her. There was a strange taboo, however, about um, Ri Sol-ju. Oh, the wife of Kim Jong-un. Well, on one occasion I was speaking to a North Korean and um, and I brought her up and he said, kind of in hushed tones, you mean the wife? Uh, and he didn't really want to talk about her. And then Chad got in a little bit of trouble <laughs> on a visit to a cosmetics factory because mm. he asked the he asked the woman running the factory, do you think that Resolju has influenced um, the leader to kind of have an interest in this topic? And the minder refused to translate the question. He said, we can't ask her that. Don't ask really? those types yeah. of questions. And then, and then my minder said, how could you ask that, Chad? How could you ask that question? 
And I, I, I suddenly realized that I'd indirectly questioned the Supreme Leader's total right. uh, power yeah. and thought making process and, and the idea that his wife may be having even a sort of jovial influence yeah. on him to invest more in the, this cosmetic sector was just like, do not ask. So I, 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 I assume then that uh, uh, the remarks that she made um, around the table with President Moon when they were having dinner at the first summit where she talked about was actually maybe it wasn't there it was sometime with a, in meetings with South Koreans and she talked about trying to get Kim Jong-un to cut down on his smoking oh yeah uh, I'm, I'm assuming that those remarks would not have been reported in, uh, not. in the north at all certainly not yeah and I mean one we did I, I won't go into the details but we did get a, a, a real sort of insight into some of the more police state aspects of North Korea uh, and what we saw, you know, there's a lot of these undercover police on the streets that are uh, keeping watch, uh, sort of neighborhood watch type stuff. But there was one uh, instance where we got a, a bit of a clear uh, impression of, of how that works. And what my immediate feeling after seeing this process roll out was that we're seeing all this inter-Korean rapprochement. There's on the surface like interest in uh, inter-Korean exchanges and South Korean tourists going back to DPRK and Kim Jong-un has even called for it from the very top level but seeing that kind of police state that is just below the surface pretty much everywhere you can see it just made me think really hell there's no no way on earth I can imagine DPRK being comfortable with South Koreans roaming around Pyongyang anytime probably in, a, in at least a decade like it, it, it really hammered home like just how how much of a yeah. gulf there is between what is said publicly and i think i even raised it with one of the guides like that kim jong-un had called for all this inter-korean uh, cooperation for tourists to be uh traveling um back and forth and he, he sort of kind of dismissed it as as it seemed to be implying it wasn't really a serious um remark but yeah. then surely all that investment uh, and and construction taking place out in the Kalma Peninsula in Wonsan. Yeah, but you can sanitize you can sanitize it and keep it in a very restricted area. But mm. what I'm talking about is people roaming around freely and you know, I even asked one guy who I knew that used to be in the tourism sector, how long is it gonna be until tourists can walk freely in Pyongyang? It will make a huge difference to your country, yeah. you're gonna get a lot more interest. And he said, 10 years ago, I, I answered this question to another tourist and I told them, I think, in 10 years' time. Now, 10 years later, my answer is still the same. It'll be 10 years' time. That's interesting. That's quite a, a self-reflexive answer, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's still such a degree of paranoia and control about, you know, uh, foreigners walking around and foreigners, you know, going into certain places and just trying to really keep us away from you know things that they just don't want us to see especially on a big event a big anniversary where they want essentially all journalists to come out with the same cookie cutter stuff yeah and we can i guess we can kind of see that a little bit in uh, the inter-korean liaison office that's about to open up today um i read uh, just this morning or yesterday actually that uh, uh, it's a multi-story building uh and the uh, the north koreans will be on the um uh, the second floor and the South Koreans will be on the fourth floor 
Uh, and the third floor in the middle will be for the meetings that they have between the two of them. And this kind of ruined the image for me because I had initially imagined well, I thought they that were you'd have an off, office yeah. full of, of North and South Koreans separated, separated only by low cubicle walls. And you'd, just, you'd have... Uh, uh, you know, water cooler talk, or you'd have the South Korean, you know, with his elbows up on the cubicle wall, talking to his North Korean neighbor, saying, "Hey, did you see that? You know, that uh, football match last night, or you know, how about that latest blockbuster film, or whatever?" And that obviously won't be going on because they'll be working on separated by two floors. Uh, and what one would imagine they'll have to fax each other to prepare a meeting, mm-hmm. and like the line is going to go down. It, I mean, yeah, it, it again, it just shows you how far we are in reality from a lot of the types of things that should just be logical and easy to do at this stage. And yet we are still seeing signs from South Korea that, uh, or at least uh, indications from South Korea that that they're, you know, quite far ahead of of the reality in that, aren't they? That there's a lot of, a lot of optimism on the part of the South Korean government that, uh, that that real rapprochement is, is taking place. And I think no one wants to be left behind if and when it does all happen like i think the idea is that you know there'll be agriculture ministry is preparing cooperation and it's not because uh necessarily they believe it's gonna happen now or that they can do it now it's because if it if we do get to a situation where it is possible they don't want to be the people that are just not prepared for it right so they will develop all of these plans you know the south korean ministry of unification has detailed plans on how they're going to run x y and z when it all when things change, you know, and I suppose part of that is so when it does change, they can just have a plan already in place. Right, but we, we've also got the uh, the sort of the other elephant in the room we haven't mentioned yet, which is the international sanctions uh, on oh, North Korea. Oh, yes. And there's the question of, does having a liaison office in North Korean territory, does is that in itself a, a breach of sanctions? And I, I, yeah, there are some suggestion that the hold-up of opening the liaison office, which should have been opened a month or two ago, uh, might be partly because of, of waiting for an okay from the White House or at least has to approval. What do you make of that? Well, yeah, some argue that uh, this constitutes a breach of UN sanctions because obviously the, the South Korean side has had to move various hardware, uh, building equipment in much of which almost certainly breaches the HS codes that are used to um, classify types of materials which North Korea shouldn't be allowed to have at the moment. On the flip side, there's this argument that while foreign embassies in Pyongyang are bringing stuff in all the time, and so therefore why is a South Korean liaison office not uh, to be considered in the same way. Then you have arguments that say, well, the two careers recognize each other as one, so therefore it's not a diplomatic uh, move or office that's that's opening. But yeah, yeah, you could just go on and on. The one thing I think that really came clear from the trip, though, is, uh, you know, the luxury goods are everywhere in, in DPRK right now. Um, still, yeah, still. Every, uh, so we're talking. I, uh, there's no shortage. Liquor or you'll, you'll go to shops and they'll be. It's be full of high quality liquor and Japanese stuff. Yeah, Japanese um, stuff, German stuff. Um, you know, handbags, shoes, sporting equipment. I mean, it really doesn't feel like there's much impact. But we had a lot of interesting conversations in the north about sanctions and the impact that they have because the line is that they don't impact us at all and that we're a nation that's always been under sanctions and therefore doesn't affect us but then I had a conversation with the factory manager which I included in an article that I filed from Pyongyang um, where he did accept that there had been some difficulties created by sanctions 
primarily in his ability to buy machinery uh, from China, which he'd traditionally done. This was in the silk factory. He said he'd, he'd bought his machinery from China in the past, but the sanctions had prevented him from doing that. Mm. And then he said that has meant that we've actually started developing a domestic industry for this type of machinery, which to me suggested there may be a link between this emphasis on economic development in country and sanctions and perhaps there's some kind of recognition and acknowledgement that sanctions aren't really going anywhere and that we need to really just go back to as much economic self-reliance as possible and we're going to just do this ourselves then if if we can't buy it from china we'll make vans we'll make machinery we'll bring in make our own cosmetics we'll make our own luxury handbags etc etc It is somewhat disheartening that the sanctions don't always work as intended. I mean, you mentioned seeing all these different luxury goods there. Meanwhile, I had a conversation with somebody this week from a a non-governmental organization who explained that uh, there's a certain kind of um, plastic water filter, and you can put almost the dirtiest water through this filter, and out the other end comes potable Mm. drinking water. Uh, And this can't be brought into North Korea uh, because of sanctions. It also says a lot about the regime's priorities that... Yeah. Long, long com, you know, um, perfume is there, but you know, water but, filtration is. But I, 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 I've got this theory. I, I don't know if it's true, but I suspect that. Uh, I always we we've heard a lot from the UN system and from NGOs that they really really struggle to import uh, a really wide range of things, and that oftentimes Chinese customs is, is pointed at as being the the block on this stuff. Yeah, you go to the Pyongyang Trade Fair, the Rassam Trade Fair, just scores of Chinese businessmen selling things like LED TVs, uh, uh, computers, yeah. all of which is, is technically sanctioned. So, use. so they 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 are the Chinese businessmen seem to have absolutely no problem swanning in with like truckloads of this stuff. Mm. But the NGOs, which are doing have humanitarian exemptions, right. seem to have a lot of hurdles, and it almost makes me wonder if there is some kind of tactical sanctions implementation on the Chinese side which is designed to create uh, this frustration bubbling up from NGOs who will talk about it um, to P5 countries at the UN with uh, from the Chinese perspective the goal of of creating a kind of organic pressure build up to, to diminish sanctions. So it's a deliberate crisis creation perhaps? Perhaps, to- I mean I, I don't have any evidence to support it beyond just the fact that the business people seem to have absolutely no problem mm. and I suspect that's why we saw all these luxury goods because they're just they're just being blatantly and openly bought in and one one foreigner we spoke to just said that oh, they've given up on, on keeping an eye on these things because it's just so prolific now and uh, I think if you're a US official you should uh, you should consider that because um, it's it's clear that that part of, of, of sanctions doesn't, doesn't really have any impact. So well, we were actually told um, when we were complaining about the bill, well, <laughs> which bill? About the bill for the transport, they said, well, don't blame us, you should blame sanctions. Ah. And he said, if you want it to be cheaper, lift sanctions. And I obviously had to explain that Chad and I, as much as, um, <laughs> as, much as we'd love to have that power um, and be in that position, um, we obviously can't lift sanctions. So. Uh, overall, I mean, it, it's been... Uh, what, a year and a few months since your previous visit, um, did anything look or feel different in North Korea? Well, I mean, Oliver's just alluded to one big difference, which when you go on these journalistic delegations, you have a sort of number of fees to pay beyond the hotel bill and your flight. 
um, last year for three of us uh, for a five-day tour those fees came up to about 1,400 euros um, this year for two of us for a seven night uh, stay those fees were 2,700 euros mm. um, and the biggest difference was the bus we were charged 170 euros a day for the right to sit in a bus for really quite short trips um, and as Oliver said that was explained away is due to price hikes and on, on gas which don't, don't make sense to that level and yet we when we got a taxi a couple of times in Pyongyang it cost like two euros on one occasion 15 mm. and another for quite a long drive and so it would have been much more cost effective to have a private driver the whole time than go on these buses but that was it that was a big difference um it did feel a bit more like there was a bit of penny pinching going on mm. we heard of uh, some journalists being like well, when we tried to check in they tried to put us in first class accommodation at the Yangakdo and we spotted that straight away and got downgraded to just standard classrooms but um, that means you and Ollie shared a room, doesn't it? Uh, we had separate rooms. Oh, <laughs> no, but they, yeah, as Chad said, there was a sense that they were trying to rinse rinse us as much as possible. Mm. Um, beyond that, you know, obviously the vibe was very different to when we went last year. There wasn't, um, you know, last year was just as we were getting into that fire and fury yes. phase. There were a lot of missile tests um, kind of ahead of us. And, you know, last year it was felt a lot more like um, there was a bit more tension. Um, there wasn't the inter-Korean stuff going on. Um, the North Koreans were much more about showing that we're, a, you know, powerful nuclear power back then. Now they still say that, but they kind of, it's more about, um, well, you know we have them. We don't need to go on about them anymore. So the bellicosity was definitely reduced. Then. I think it was definitely toned yeah. down, yeah. Uh, do you want to, just on a final note there, uh, to our listeners, perhaps give a, a preview of uh, what to expect in uh, post-visit articles that you'll be writing for uh, NK News or NK Pro? Uh, yeah, so for NK Pro readers, um, we will probably be doing a quite detailed roundup of really a really wide range of indicators and things we've seen, things we heard. Um, so expect that. Um, and then I th think on NK News we'll do probably uh, another gallery or couple galleries we've recently acquired a lot of photos taken uh from pektu all the way down to kaesong oh. um as of late august through september so we'll see if there are any interesting trends there one thing i did notice was men every man seems to have a man bag these days um it seems to be a fashion that's, that's is it the one that you sort of just hold in your hand type a thing. clutch okay yeah. rather than slung across the shoulder yeah 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 um, very inconvenient like type of bag i personally think but uh yeah i was told they're quite fashionable <laughs> i'm a yeah. big believer in man bags <laughs> but not the clutch style I, I think i definitely need something with a long strap yeah um and then yeah beyond that we have uh, an event for those of you in seoul uh next friday um, talking about the Intercorean Summit and of course yes that'll be result. the next big thing right uh, Tuesday, Wednesday it's a three day visit by President Moon to Pyongyang isn't it yes uh, 18, 19, 20th um, which is it's interesting I, I wonder why it's going to be so long given the I think there's a lot to talk about hmm. yeah. well we definitely look forward to that and so the event you say is next week uh, Friday yes for, for uh, for if you're an NK Pro subscriber in uh, Seoul, get in touch and we can send you the details. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks again to Ollie and Chad for uh, coming in and talking to us today uh, for our rough and ready post 70th anniversary uh, party podcast. 
Uh, and listen again next week, uh, listeners, to our interview with uh, Martina from the Swedish Embassy.